Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg, authoritarian populism, the wall, Viktor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age? That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. Eli Pariser, in our introductory chat before we turn the recorder on, I said, what's your one-liner? You said digital activist. So what does that mean? You spent your life as a digital activist. What does, what does that involve? <laughs> uh, I like it because it's, it's totally uh, vague and opaque. You know, I, I think from, you know, I got my start in this world of kind of thinking about the internet and democracy at MoveOn. And there, you know, really the question was, how do you take these new tools that are provided by the internet and um, use them to make ordinary citizens more powerful and have more of a voice in the political process? And so that was kind of my, my um, where I cut my teeth on these issues. But um, at MoveOn, it became really quickly clear that the people who controlled the communications mediums that we used, you know, had a huge amount of power over the political process as well. You joined uh, MoveOn.org in 2004, which seems almost like a century ago in internet time. <laughs> I mean, actually, 2001, I think, I, was when I started working with the founders. How hopeful were you back then, almost you know, 17, 18 years ago? How hopeful yeah. were you that um, the internet was going to be a platform that enabled radical political reform, particularly given your politics, radical reform on the left from the progressive perspective? Yeah, I was very hopeful. Um, and, and actually, you know, even more than, you know, my particular political leanings, I was hopeful about the idea, which was very common and uh, a lot of people were excited about then, that this was just a technology that technology was inevitably going to decentralize power. And um, I think in a way, you know, the arc of the last uh, 18 years has been, you know, this, this increasing realization that not only is it not decentralizing power in a lot of ways, um, it's, it's increasingly concentrating it. And that that's not a function of, the technology per se, the technology could be used to decentralize or concentrate, but that it turns out that existing, you know, incumbents and power structures are much harder to displace than I think people believed back in, in 2001. Do you have a, um, did you have a moment, uh, a rude awakening when you recognized that this youthful dream you had 
of the internet wasn't going to be realized? Well, I did. I, I do remember um, seeing a article that was pointing out that at, at the time, sort of blogs were a proxy for this idea of the decentralization of of power and of audience. And someone noticed in 2007 that there were no new progressive blogs, like that it had started that that it had stopped, which seemed weird because um, the whole idea was that anyone could have a voice. Um, and in fact, that the structure of the web linking system was yielding more consolidation of traffic toward big aggregators like the Huffington Post or the New York Times than um, distribution of traffic. And so that was really the first time that I started to wonder, like, is this whole thing going to turn out the way that we all expected? Or are there actually other dynamics at play? And I think what we've seen over the last 10 years is that, you know, there are just extraordinary benefits to being the New York Times if you're in media or being Facebook if you're, you know, in the in the attention business. Um, and that those returns to scale are, are very, very strong. So it's a winner-take-all economy, which, um, given the network effect, lends itself to the big players or the pre-existing big players. And it's an increasingly hard market to break into. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, correct. And, and you know, part of that is the nature of network effects, but part of it is also the way that these companies have thrown their weight around to, you know, block new competitors. So, you know, Facebook for a long time had a whole team whose only job was to sense to find evidence of other apps that were gaining traction and figure out both on the one hand, how to defensively block those apps from using Facebook to, you know, reach an audience. And then also, you know, how do, how do they copy uh, the features that, um, you know, the apps were finding traction with, they were very successful with that and still are, you know, again, it's a place where we're seeing that, the idea that this was some kind of like even playing field, um, and maybe it was in in 1996, you know, it, it, it no longer is. Well, before we get on to, to fixing those imbalances, uh, let's yeah. talk about your iconic book, The Filter Bubble, which I think more than any other book published in the early part of the 21st century, exposed the way in which the web wasn't a place for debate, for civil interaction, but actually it was a place where the tribes congregated in their own uh, ideological corners. Uh, well, you know, I had just stepped back from Move On and I had been thinking about this uh, question of the concentration of traffic. And, and I started to kind of do some research to figure out, you know, what it meant that increasingly, instead of spending time on news homepages, people were consuming information through social feeds like Facebook. And I had actually just done this experiment where, you know, kind of to to get out of my own little liberal enclave, I had made some friends who are more, you know, libertarian and conservative and added them as Facebook friends. And what I noticed was that they weren't showing up on Facebook and Facebook had essentially edited them out. And you know, it wasn't doing that um, to censor them, but it was doing it because it noticed that 
I wasn't clicking on their links as much as I was from my liberal friends. And so, you know, it was just the algorithm was happily optimizing to what it thought I was interested in. And I thought, you know, if this is happening times a whole society, and at that time it was, you know, a few hundred million people and not not the 2.5 billion that it is today, you know, what does that mean for the ability to have a real conversation? And so that's really what led me to write the book. What what year was uh, Filter Bible published? Was it 2009? Uh, 2011. Uh, 2011. And yeah. uh, is there anything in the book you argued then that you got wrong, do you think? Or do you think you pretty much nailed it? Oh, I mean, uh, there's a lot that I that I got wrong or that I feel like I've, I've learned in the last uh, six years and or seven years. And, um, you know, I think part of that is these effects are complicated. And so they really vary depending on who you are and how you use media. So for some people, you know, who are really intense social media users, they will experience, you know, a pretty strong bubble effect. But for a lot of people who are casual users, because their networks are much smaller and much more sparse, you know, the the network, the the, the effect of the algorithms is weaker. You know, when after 20, 2016, a lot of people sort of uh, the, the term really popped again and, and people were talking about it. A lot of people wanted to kind of blame filter bubbles for um, the rise of Trump. And I felt like that was, you know, not a very compelling analysis, even though it probably would have helped my book sales because, you know, older white men who are not college educated in the upper Midwest are not heavy social media users. Um, they're, they're probably not on Twitter, you know, almost at all, you know, really 2016 to me was much more about uh, radio and TV than it was about the internet as far as Trump reaching his, his base. That may be true, but nonetheless, uh, over the last three or four years, we've obviously had the Cambridge Analytica scandals. We've had more and more evidence that digital media is being exploited and abused by agents of misinformation. And in, in many ways, democracy is being undermined by that. What's the connection between the arguments you made in the filter bubble and this contemporary crisis of information? Well, I mean, I think certainly this was one of the other pieces that I didn't really see was how, you know, a variety of actors, whether consciously or unconsciously, were going to see this possibility for driving hyper engagement around media that appealed to people's sort of pre-existing sense of what was true and use that opportunity to either profit or or drive a message. So, you know, I think the 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 Russians the Russian trolls certainly knew, you know, how to create media that was very well suited to, you know, spiking the algorithms and be served up to people, you know, because they already wanted to kind of believe it or wanted to to see it. That's one piece. But I also think, you know, it's part of why it's so hard. I think American society feels so divided and the civic fabric feels so frayed is that um, we really don't exist in the same information universe anymore. And part of that, as I said, is is not just the Internet. It's it's mainstream media as well. But um, online, especially, you know, 
there are sites that are very familiar to millions and millions of people that I, I've never seen in my life. Um, and the same is true in, in the reverse. Um, there are sites that I consider to be, you know, everybody reads this. And, and in fact, it's just a very small portion of the population who does, who happen to be my friends. You know, I think it's, it, we don't have these common media experiences as much anymore. And I think that's part of why it's, it's hard to hold a country together when, when people aren't experiencing the same thing. Was that fear one of the things that drove you to found Upworthy? Yeah, well, with Upworthy, I had, I had been going around and talking about the filter bubble, and and it felt sort of lame to me just to be saying, you know, I felt I felt like clearly the platforms needed to be doing more about it, but in addition, there must be something that media could do to adapt. And so, to me, the question with Upworthy was, I was worried that if entertainment content, you know, had to compete with news content all the time that news content was going to lose a lot of the time unless it was super sensational or or entertaining. And so we were trying to figure out how do you get sort of civic conversations that are not shrill and not accusatory to surface in an algorithmic world. That was really, you know, what got us started with Upworthy. And it was interesting and cool to see that you really could find um, this big audience who wanted to engage around meaningful things and who were surprisingly kind of cross-partisan. How did you escape the filter bubbles in Upworthy? What were you <laughs> doing that nobody else was doing? Well, I mean, it was very deliberate, which was we were trying to, we, we were very focused on kind of hopeful and inspiring um, content that was not um, hopefully, you know, sort of Pollyannish or, or too sweet, but that would, give people a sense of, of agency and opportunity instead of scaring people. And I think a lot of political content is really, it's about anger. It's about fear. You know, our, our objective was to start with, you know, there, there are people doing really good, important things, including on a lot of topics that just don't have a strong political balance. Yeah. Let's bring, bring people together around those. And it wasn't that we didn't take a strong stand on on climate change or gay marriage. I mean, we we had an editorial position that, like most companies that focus on millennials, you know, leaned left. But um, but we were really trying to be very open minded and open spirited in how we were talking about those issues. Would it be fair to say that Upworthy wasn't uh, a, a home run success? I mean, in the end, absolutely. Uh, you know, there were there were periods where I think we were really happy about how, uh, you know, how it was going. And and I'm still very proud that, you know, over this long period of time, we were reaching, you know, tens of millions of people a month with fact checked, hopeful stories about things that matter. That that seems just as important to me now as it did when I started. I think uh, as a business, you know, I found after after a period of time that the advertisement, the advertising business is just as unappealing as it sounds like it is, you know, and that limited our ability to kind of break through as a as a startup. If if you were founding Upworthy again uh, as a as an attempt to break through the filter bubbles and bring people together online around curated, reliable information and facts, what would you do differently? It's a good question. I mean, the the real challenge right now is that 
Upworthy, we had always conceived of as, you know, there, there's a ton of media uh, sites that focus on news for news junkies, essentially. And those people tend to be coastal and college educated and um, wealthier, and they're great for advertising. But they're, they they have a wealth of options. And so for us, you know, really, we were looking to build something that was resonant with people who were not that group of people and who were more, you know, in the middle of the country and less able to spend all of their time focused on consuming news. That is a really challenging place to build a business right now, both because everybody's moving toward these sort of like niche subscription businesses. You know, you, you're focusing on kind of, Ohio dog lovers or something. And they tend to be walled gardens, so they're not bringing people yeah. together. They're a, yeah, exactly. a selected audience. I mean, I, I, I get why people are excited about subscription-based media businesses, but to me, sort of with my civic hat on, I worry about it because, you know, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and all these other publications are getting better and better at understanding who might ever be a New York Times subscriber and tailoring their content to serve that group of people. And meanwhile, um, you know, sort of the, the information equality, inequality grows where um, you have news junkies better informed than ever, but actually, you know, the average American, um, I mean, it's, it's shocking, it's striking. Like the average American is not more informed about um, political and civic events than he or she was 30 years ago before this whole internet thing <laughs> came around. And so, you know, that doesn't answer your question, but I guess, you know, one way to say it would be, I'm not sure that you can build a, a really, you know, venture scale business and accomplish that mission. And I think where a lot of the heat has gone actually is to these sort of hybrid, hybrid low profit or nonprofit models for civically minded media, because, you know, everybody's realized that the only way to make a lot of money on media is with these like very small, elite audiences. What do you think the role of government should be, particularly the US government, in terms of fighting online misinformation, whether it's propaganda from abroad or from other Americans? So l let me just kind of push on that question, because if I can, if I can do kind of an extended metaphor here, you know, my sense is that the American information system is sick. But there's sort of two two things going on. So imagine someone who has an immune disorder, and the immune disorder means that they're, you know, a common cold is much more likely to kill you. So I, I sort of think of the American information environment as like, you know, the immune disorder has been set in motion decades ago, and that's the decline of a whole bunch of kind of civic capacities, including, you know, the fairness doctrine and public media and civil associations and newspapers and even just, um, you know, car culture and TV, which displace a lot of the time that people had for civic life. And so you have this kind of uh, increasingly frayed and atomized American community with media resources that were already kind of stretching and and thinning, then you introduce the internet and, and the internet and these social platforms turn out to be like really, really great vectors for, you know, for viral disease. So on the one hand, you have to kill, you have to, you have to do something about the, the disease because, you know, like the common cold, if you have a compromised immune system, it can kill you. 
But on the other hand, if you're not strengthening the immune system in the long run, you know, you're toast. So we're dealing with two sort of parallel medical conditions. But are you suggesting that the American government, to extend your metaphor, is a doctor here and needs to address both of those? Where that leads me is I actually think because of the speech concerns, I'm much more comfortable with the government taking a strong role on the immune system piece than I am with the government taking a strong role on on the moderation of speech Coming. online. And so and I and I actually just think it's much more important. Like, you know, we know that people who are well informed um you know, are just less susceptible to a lot of the conspiracy theories and a lot of the false information that's out there. So the question is, how do you build a strong uh, fact-based information delivery system? And I think what most industrialized countries have found is that there is a a funding component to that that is at least partly uh, involves the state. And that Mm -hmm. might be state news like exists in lots of parts of Europe. Or it might be, you know, funding that reallocates money toward um, civic news in- infrastructure. And I think as you look at, you know, literally every day, local newspapers um, and even local TV, which is still a big, you know, source of news just waning across America. Um, I think we have to consider using some of the enormous profits that these tech companies are making that used to be driving that ecosystem, you know, taxing some of it and reallocating that toward um, media that serves the public good. Do you think that these platforms like Facebook and Google should be required by government to be more transparent about the way in which their algorithms work so that everyone can understand the the the, the sort of the, the filter bubble architecture of the web because you figured it out, but you were an insider. Most people are totally mystified by the way this thing works. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think transparency is an important piece of the equation, but I don't think it's sufficient. And that's where I think a lot of the kind of the data rights piece is more powerful. You know, it just seems pretty clear to me that if you or I put information into an information service like Google or Facebook, we should be able to see it, change it and delete it and move it somewhere Mm. else. You know, it's one of the ironies of this moment that, you know, people talk a great game about disruption and competition, but, you know, these big Facebook and Google, you know, are very (laughs) anti-competitive and creating a more competitive environment would be a big step forward in my view freeing the data that we put in in the first place and giving people more of a sense of ownership and control over that to me is a much more powerful move because it allows for the possibility of someone to come along and actually uh, challenge Facebook or challenge Google. Are you suggesting then that the Europeans are doing it right with initiatives like the GDPR? Well, GDPR in its implementation was a mess and, and probably strengthened Facebook and Google, frankly. But I think that there are are better designed uh, versions of some of those concepts that would actually unlock. I mean, the, the problem with GDPR was that, you know, essentially it tilted the playing field in favor of services that people were so deeply enmeshed in that they would give them approval for almost anything. <laughs> and, you know, 
I think what you really want is something that allows a startup that is providing some new service to draw on some of the, you know, scale and and power of the existing incumbents. And so um, if I could bring, for example, my entire lifetime search history and email history to a new search entrant, you know, that would give them a much better leg up to serve me well than if they have to spend, you know, 10 or 15 years recreating Google's growth curve. So, so to me, you know, that would be one piece that I think it's fairly uncontroversial if you're talking to normal people that they, they ought to have that right. (laughs) And it could really change, you know, the market. Eli, we started this conversation with you uh, saying that your rude awakening about the web was recognizing the winner-take-all nature of the economy and the fact that for startups, it wasn't a level playing field. What's your thinking on antitrust and what the Europeans are doing and what the Americans are trying to do to break the stranglehold of these trillion-dollar leviathans like Google, Amazon, maybe Facebook? I, I think it is a really important piece of the equation and a really important tool um, because beyond what might actually happen in the course of, I mean, it, the challenge with antitrust is that it takes years and years and years and years, you know, and it's really we hard to start run, somewhere. Like, I mean, in, tr- we've got sure. to start somewhere. Well, no, I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. I'm just saying there are limits. I think sometimes people imagine that that alone will change everything. But I think, you know, beyond sort of the literal consequences of what happens in court, there's also the fact that it just kind of checks the power of what are fairly unchecked entities. And to me, that's almost more important that, you know, when someone at one of these companies is thinking about doing something that is unethical, or that is um, anti-competitive, that, you know, either there's some, some question marks that emerge or, or a lawyer somewhere says, hey, uh, let's let's not do that. To me, that's really important. But but I do think we actually need, you know, sort of more of a paradigm shift than antitrust alone will allow. In the sense that, you know, I don't think that a world in which there are four digital giants instead of two is so much better. <laughs> and and I think part of that gets back to the kind of the immune system question, which is I think we can get much clearer on what it is that we what, what what obligations, what it is that we need from and expect from these platforms and encourage them or obligate them to build toward that. If you were starting again, not just with Upworthy uh, or the filter bubble, but in your calling as a digital activist, you began at moveon.org, as you suggested, um, uh, 20 years, more than 20, uh, 20, almost 20 years ago. Was it more than 20 years ago? I guess 2001 was... 18 years ago. Right, 18 so. years ago. Um, <laughs> what should digital activists now be focused on in their calling? Obviously, they need to earn an income. But what are the key issues that concern you? Is it monopolies of these huge companies? Is it privacy? Is it misinformation? If there's one thing, what do you think digital activism should be focused on right now? Um, it's It's hard because there's so much important work that's happening but let me see if i can kind of offer offer a partial answer which is i do think in a way you know if there has to be one thing it is that i mean it, it is just a totally unprecedented 
fact of human existence that one individual would control so much of how 2.5 billion people communicate. Um, and I'm talking about Zuckerberg there. That is, it, no matter how good he is, morally or ethically, no matter how benign, you know, I, I think we've learned from history that like empires that have, you know, God kings are not very sustainable or durable institutions. Hmm. And the part of that is because, you know, one person with his particular life experience can't possibly imagine, empathize with, respond to the, you know, literally billions of different life experiences that um, are using the platform. And so he happens to be, you know, a a wealthy white man from the West, that point of view, you know, really doesn't accommodate, you know, the way that a lot of people are living and using the platform. So um, I think if there isn't some kind of feedback loop that is enforced with power, you know, just history would say, this is a fragile system and bad things are going to happen. And I think they, they are, you know, I think if there's two issues, it's, it's, it's the way that that concentration of power interacts with, you know, societal inequities. Um, and that could be by race or by class or by um, the way that it shifts economic dynamics. To me, that's the heart of what's challenging right now is um, the confluence of those two things. So you're from Maine, and I know you're naturally quite a cheerful person. Let's end on a, <laughs> on a more cheerful note than Mark Zuckerberg's power. I know you think there's one... <laughs> possible fix to a lot of this stuff uh, a chink of light and that's cities so so very briefly Eli tell me why you're so helpful that that cities and the urban model could be a solution to many of our contemporary ills digital and otherwise I do think I do think cities offer a lot of hope and here's why I've been working on a project called civic signals and and part of the question that we've been trying to answer is you know, what would we like platforms to do for us, not just to stop doing? And um, as part of that, we started asking, you know, if we think about platforms as spaces for social interaction, are there models that we have for how to structure spaces well? Cities and urban planners and urban thinkers, I think, are some of our best models. And they do offer hope because, you know, at times when you look at this whole thing and say, well, it's just impossible for millions or billions of people who don't know each other, who are strangers, to relate reasonably well, um, you know, cities are the existence proof that it is possible and that you can get a lot of people who are really, really different from each other together in ways where they don't just not, you know, kill each other, but actually create beautiful things together and create value together. You know, I really, I've been doing a deep dive on sort of how do we take some of what has been learned in urban planning and urban design and apply it to the design of the virtual spaces where we're now spending a lot of time. And I do think there's a lot of, of ideas, you know, cities have had to deal with a bunch of these problems for centuries. And so there are a lot of ideas that, you know, that come from uh, urban life that, that we could rely on. Um, but I also think it does, it does come back to Zuckerberg in a way and that, you know, cities are just a mix of private and public institutions. And um, the public spaces, the parks, the libraries, the town halls, those are really important as well. And so I, I do think 
cities show it's possible, but it also shows that there are some missing pieces of our digital infrastructure that we really need to get building and, and quickly. And I am opt optimistic that we can. And I sort of think, um, you know, just like people gave up on cities, people are kind of giving up on the internet. It's too soon to count it out. We just need to kind of build a better one. And that's what I'm hoping to focus on going forward. Now, we've got a real big favor that we need to ask. If you like this episode and you've been enjoying the other interviews, we'd sure love it if you headed over to the iTunes podcast app and leave us a review. If you'd like to hear more episodes, there's a subscribe button there and in all of the platforms like Spotify, Overcast and Google Play. So head over to one of those, subscribe, leave us a review, share it with your friends if you'd like, and we'd appreciate it so much. Be sure to check out our next episode every Thursday. And from all of us at Keenan Democracy, we hope you have a fantastic day.